If you have your Bibles, we are going to be starting a new sermon series um, in the book of Jonah. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Jonah, the book of Jonah, and we will be reading a few verses from there um, shortly. The, the plan is to, to take six weeks, the next six weeks, to cover these four chapters. Um, and so that, that is where we will go um, for now, Lord willing. So, so turning to the book of Jonah, let me, um, and I'm not going to spend too much time in terms of introduction, but I do want to just set the stage before we jump right in. Um, th- again, this, this book is only four chapters, um, and so we won't have week after week after week to see themes develop. So, so I just want to kind of set the stage here, week one. In fact, I think the best way to preach this book may be to do it in just one sermon. Um, it, it's, a, it's a short four-chapter book. Um, and in fact, I would, I would challenge you this week and, and in the coming weeks, maybe commit to reading the book of Jonah uh, in one sitting each time, uh, once a week. So, may, so maybe just commit to reading the four chapters um, at least once a week. You could do it every day. Um, but, but as you read it, um, you'll grow more and more familiar with it. And, and the message of the book, the themes of the book, I think will, will become more plain to you. And you will benefit more from sitting here listening um, week after week as we preach through this. But let me just, two, two points of introduction. Um, the book itself, uh, it is an Old Testament book, which, which simply means it, it came before Christ. So it's, it's the old part, the first part of the Bible. Um, and, and this Old Testament is focused on God's covenant or his special relationship with his people, the nation of Israel. And, and among the books in the Old Testament, a majority of them are called the prophets, and so the, a major section of the Old Testament are the prophets. Now, there are major prophets and there are minor prophets. They're so-called not because of their importance or, or lack of importance. They're called major because they're longer. They have more chapters. So think of a lot, uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. These are the major prophets because they're the longest prophets. The minor prophets, are the, they're not less significant. They're not like the, the minor leagues, but they're, they're real prophets, just as important, just as inspired, but they're shorter. Um, and so Jonah, seeing that it's only four chapters, falls in this group of minor prophets. So Jonah is one of the minor prophets, and there are 12 minor prophets. In fact, early on in, in, in the Hebrew Bible, the 12 prophets are not separate books. It's the book of the 12. So the prophets are, the minor prophets are one book that are told in, in 12 different parts. Um, so, so Jonah finds itself among the minor prophets. So it's unique in that, in that sense, but it's also unique in that um, this book is almost completely biographical. So, so some of the prophets, think about the lives of the prophets, some of the prophets have, have events of the prophets' lives, um, but, but the majority of, of prophetic books, they have, this is what the Lord says, and then there's block quotes of this is the, the judgment against Israel, or this is the judgment against the nations, or, or even this is what the Lord showed me. I, I went and looked at the potter on the wheel. I had this vision, and, and this is the message from the Lord. But, but Jonah the word of the Lord is very brief. In fact, it's one sentence in chapter one and one sentence in chapter three. And so the, the majority of the book is teaching through the life of Jonah. The prophet's life, not the prophet's message, is the focus, as we'll see. And so one of the, the most common questions as we come to, to Jonah's life and, and how he responds to this call to, to go to the nation of Nineveh People, and, and all that happens, people come to this book and, and they want to understand, well, how are we to understand this? Okay, it's a, it's a prophet, one of the minor prophets, but how do we understand this, the specifics, the events <clears throat> that take place within the book? And there's really two, two schools of thought. There's two 
camps, if you will. There's, there's those who would say, well, to understand the, the book of, of Jonah, we have to recognize or understand that the genre or the nature of it is it's, it's not to be taken literally or it's fictitious. Now, some will say Jonah is just a legend, never happened, just made up. Others will say, no, 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 the, the book was written in Israel, maybe it was written post-exile, but it, it was written looking back at an event that actually happened, but it's, it's elevated language, or it's exaggeratory, or it's a parable, or it's an allegory. Um, in all these cases, the, the conviction is the events of this book probably didn't take place. So, so whether it's a legend, a parable, or an allegory, the book, people would say, is to, to, to understand it. Not, not so much as fictional, like, oh, it didn't even happen, but, but God's using this prophet in this book, this allegory, to, 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 to convey God, a message from God, but it's done through like a parable, things that didn't actually happen. And so that they, they would say, well, it's not intended to be taken literally. Now, the other camp would be, it's a historical account of events that actually happened, obvious hesitation to, to this camp, right? I think you know that the hesitation to jump all into to this category comes from the most well-known event of the book, which would be the, the fact that Jonah was swallowed by a whale or a fish. A fish, I see that head shaking. It's a fish, maybe it's a whale. But, but, but people say, well, that, that actually could never happen. So, so all of these events, we, 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 we can't really take them at face value. And so a lot of people that you talk to about this book, many people would not give a second thought to the idea that this, this book actually took place. So they'd say, of course it didn't happen. Now, two things to note. First, that, that's a modern development. So, so most of scholarly uh, thought on the book of Jonah falls into that, that, that first category of, of its, its fiction didn't really happen. However, they want to decide it. The, the, the modern scholarly consensus is it didn't actually happen. That's even among Christian scholars, or Christian scholarship, I should say. Um, so it's, but, but that is a recent development. Up until 100 years ago, no one questioned whether it actually happened or not. It's a, it's a, it's a recent shift. But then second, if you want to say, well, well the fish issue is, is hard to believe, we just have to step back and say, that's not the only unbelievable thing in this book. I mean, a man is thrown into a raging sea and it stops immediately. Well, an entire city hears a message of judgment and the entire city from the greatest to least repents calls out to, to, to God for mercy. Or later, a, a vine grows up and then withers again in a matter of a day. So, so this book is filled with things that are hard to believe. And, and so, so the, the book is, is, is filled from start to finish with unbelievable things that, that people would say well, it's impossible to take literally. And I would agree it's impossible to take it literally unless your worldview or your perspective on the world is such that the creator can intervene at any point and do anything he chooses in his world. The creator can intervene at any point to do anything he chooses. If you read the lives of Elijah and Elisha, two Old Testament prophets, they're filled with miraculous events. Moses and his encounter with Pharaoh, think about the 10 plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea. The entire storyline of the Bible is dependent upon God being able to intervene in his world for his purposes. And so if you come to the Bible with, with that worldview, that perspective, that conviction, these, the, the, the events of Jonah are not problematic. And it's not that we close our eyes and plug our ears and say, no, 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 I'm not listening to reason or logic. That's not the case. The case is that logic and reason cannot always explain God's activity in the world. I mean, let's not, whenever, whenever we have this type of discussion, I just want to point us back to the fact that the foundation of our faith is the belief that God became a man, was crucified, dead, buried, and walked out of the tomb alive. 
I mean, if anything's unbelievable, that's unbelievable. But that is the foundation of our faith. So we must not be afraid of saying, well, it sounds crazy. I know it sounds crazy that a man was, was inside the belly of a fish for three days and then was vomited out. That sounds crazy. Yeah, let's not try and minimize the, the, the folly of that thinking. But that's what happened. God's revealed it to us. And so either you go book by book, chapter by chapter, through the entire storyline of the Bible, trying to explain away the supernatural, but maintain God's word or God's, the value of, of reading the Bible, or you come to the Bible, the record of God's work in the world, accepting that because God created the world, he can disrupt or alter the typical norms and patterns of life. So obviously I come to the book of Jonah. We have good reason to believe that the events that are recorded in the book actually took place, actually happened. Call me crazy, but that's, that's how I'm going to, we're going to preach through this book. And so we'll, we'll read as we go through the events that take place. Second point of introduction, just a little bit about the man, the prophet Jonah. Not much biographically is known from these four chapters. Um, all that we know is his dad's name, really. Uh, then we know kind of how he responds to this call. But he's, he's mentioned a few times in the New Testament by Jesus um, but, but that refer, refers when Jesus says, just as Jonah was in the whale, so the son of man, it's just referring to the events of this book. But he comes up in the Old Testament before the book of Jonah in the book of Second Kings. And so, so what we know about Jonah, the most we know comes from these few verses in Second Kings chapter 14. I just wanna, I wanna read this account of, of Second Kings. So Second Kings, it's chapter 14, I'm gonna start in verse 23. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to, to this, this account in Second Kings. In the 15th year of Amaziah, who's the son of Joash, the king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned, that's Jeroboam, for 41 years. And Jeroboam did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. Okay, so, so second kings, we have the divided kingdom. You have Judah in the south. You have Israel in the north. Right, and, and Amaziah is king in Judah. His dad's name was Joash. And then in Israel in the north, Jeroboam's dad, who's also named Joash, not the same guy, but he's king and he's ruling. So you got these separated kingdoms of Israel. There's Judah and there's Israel. But Jeroboam, the king in the north, was a, a lousy king. It says he kept the sins of his father. He didn't lead Israel according to his God-given purpose. So he's a, a, a poor king of Israel. And that's the setting that, that we meet Jonah. He, verse 25, he, Jeroboam II, he restored the border of Israel as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he, that's God, spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. So you have this lousy king in, northern, in the northern kingdom, the lousy king of Israel, Jeroboam, who's leading the, the Israelites in evil, and the Lord says to this evil king through the prophet Jonah, same Jonah we meet here, he says God's gonna restore or expand the, the territory of this northern kingdom. And that's what happened. This evil king rules for 40 years in Israel and is most remembered by his, his military success and the restoration of the land so that at the time of Jeroboam II, when he's done ruling, that the land of Israel is almost to the, the extent that it was at the, under the rule of Solomon. And so that's what Jonah says to Jeroboam, the Lord's gonna expand your territory. And that's exactly what happens. Now it's gonna be short-lived, as we know, both the northern and southern kingdom eventually get, get conquered and they're, they're exiled. But during the time of Jeroboam, Jonah prophesies this and the, word, the, the promise of the Lord comes to pass. 
And so the role of Jonah in God's purposes thus far in the history of Israel, he prophesies to an evil king of Israel that, that his land's gonna be expanded so that in the face of an evil king, Jonah says, hey, God's gonna, here's the word of the Lord to you. Now, in this case, it's good news, it's blessing, and it comes to pass. And so you can imagine Jonah's life in Israel after that. He, he probably fares much better than his counterpart, Amos, who, who prophesies judgment against Israel at the time of Jeroboam. So, so Jonah probably has a, has a high seat in the palace. He's probably, he's probably a celebrity. Jeroboam certainly probably treated him well. And so Jonah now, living the high life in Israel, gets the word of the Lord and he says, go to Nineveh with a message. The situation is eerily similar though. It's an evil king. It's just not an evil king of Israel. It's an evil king of Nineveh. And it's not a, not a message of blessing. It's a message of judgment. But Jonah is called to go before an evil king and give the word of the Lord. And so Jonah, this, this setting is not abnormal for him. But we'll see this call to go to Nineveh, he does not follow through as he ought, as we'll see as we work through this book. So we will, we will cover as we go. That's all I'm going to say in terms of introduction. Jonah chapter 1, I want to read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. So, so if you have your Bible, you can follow along. If you using the Bible in front of you, it's page 774. All that was introduction. Now let's read the passage and we'll work through the, the three verses of Jonah chapter one. Jonah chapter one, beginning in verse one, here is what the Bible says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Verse three, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Let me pray for our time as we look at these three verses. Father, I pray as we look at these verses that you would teach us according to your word. Let us learn from the prophet Jonah. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, there, there's, there's two points here. There's the Lord's call in verses one and two, and then there's Jonah's response, verse three. Very, very simple outline, the Lord's call and Jonah's response. So look there at the Lord's call, verses one and two. Look there again at verse one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, the same guy from 2 Kings, and the word of the Lord comes to Jonah saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up against me. Now we recognize the, the, the language here, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, right? This is a formula that's, that's common in the Old Testament. In fact, many prophets begin this way. Joel begins this way. The word of the Lord that came to Joel. Or Zephaniah begins this way, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of the son of, and then that's how the prophets begin. And in those two cases, Joel, Zephaniah, just like here in Jonah, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and what follows is what the Lord says to Jonah. Thus, we know here's Jonah commissioned a second time by the Lord as a prophet. The word of the Lord comes to him, he's to receive the word and then obey. That's the call, that's, that's what the prophets did. And what, what, what I mentioned earlier is notice the word of the Lord is there in verse two, arise good in that great city and cry out against it for the evil has come up against me. That's the word of the Lord in Jonah. It'll come up again in chapter three, but that's it. And so Jonah, 
the word of the Lord is not a long speech. It's not a, it's not a long block quote, but here is what the Lord says. And then Jonah, his response is to either obey or not. Right? He's told, arise and go to Nineveh. And that, that's what Jonah has. That's the call. That is the simple call on the life of Jonah. And so the, the majority of the book is not what the Lord continues to say. He says what he's going to say, and the rest of the book recounts how Jonah responds. So it's not primarily about the message, the word of the Lord. It's about how the prophet struggles with the call. In fact, I, I wouldn't even say he struggles with it, as we'll see in verse 3. But Jonah is a prophet that's, that's called to go. Now, important thing to remember as we go through this book, notice that the thing about Jonah is his message is not to Israel. His message is to go to Nineveh. This account is, is of a call for him to go to Nineveh. But, now, now here's, here's where you need to stick with me. While his message isn't to Israel, the account of his going to Nineveh is a message to Israel. Now, let me say that again. His message, so, so in the book, he's not called to go to Israel. He's called to go to Nineveh. But the record of his call to go to Nineveh is a message to Israel because it's, it's, it's recorded in the prophets. The events of Jonah's life as recorded in this book are recorded to teach us as God's people, just like it was recorded to teach Israel. Thus, our goal in, in preaching and teaching and studying Jonah is to discern, well, well, what does the Lord have to say to us, his people, through the prophet's life? And so that's going to be our aim, and I think, I think we'll learn here from these first three verses as, as we get through them. But, but notice there again, verse 2, the call that's given. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. And so Jonah is, is called to go to Nineveh. Nineveh, you've probably heard the story because of this book. It's a well-known city in the ancient world. In fact, it occurs, this isn't the first time that we find Nineveh in the Old Testament. If you're going through the Bible reading plan with us, which I, let me just... A little plug, shameless plug. We're trying, people of our church are going through the five-day Bible reading plan. If you're doing it this week, you read about Nineveh because Genesis chapter 10 records the, 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 the beginning of the city of Genesis, or uh, of the city of Nineveh. And so in, in Genesis chapter 10, you have the, this, this order of Noah's sons and you have one of his sons named Ham and then a son named Cush. But then after Cush, there's a, a guy named Nimrod. And in Genesis chapter 10, it says, here's what it says about Nimrod. It says he was the first on earth to be a mighty man, and he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And so this is Nimrod, one of the, the great grandsons of Noah. And here's what it says about Nimrod. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kauna in the land of Shinar. Right? So all these cities we know, we associate with, with poor, they have poor reputations in the, the book of Genesis. But from that land, he went into Assyria, and do you know what Nimrod did? He built Nineveh, and he built Reboheth, and Kala, and Rezin, and he built all these between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. And so all the way back in Genesis 10, you have the, the origin of this city, Nineveh. It's in Assyria. But even in Genesis 10, it's associated with Nimrod and the Tower of Babel and Shinar. These are evil lands. These are cities that are built against God, and they are cities of great evil. And so that is the Nineveh that Jonah is called to. And, and by the time of Jonah, it is one of the major cities in Assyria. It would become the capital city. But, but Assyria was a constant enemy of Israel. And at that time of Jonah, the king of Assyria, probably Sennacherib, he ruled Nineveh during its, the height of its reign and, and the height of its evil and conquering. And this was at, probably at some time in the 8th century. 
But this, this is the evil city of Nineveh that Jonah is called to. And so it's unusual that the Lord is calling a prophet to go to an evil pagan nation. Right? They, they go, the prophets are sent to evil Israel and evil Judah, right? The, the evil Israelites receive the prophets. But now the Lord's sending a prophet outside of Israel, outside of Judah, to Nineveh, to, to the capital of Assyria. So, so, so that's one thing that, that, that just is, is out of place here, or seems to be. But then the other thing is that not only is it not Israel, not Judah, it is an enemy, a committed enemy against God's people. Right? This is the, one of the founding cities of the Assyrian, in, Assyrian Empire. So, so God sends Jonah to a non-Israelite city, but he sends Jonah to one of the cities that symbolized Assyria's origin and reputation for unrestrained cruelty, which means he's going to a city that could not have cared less about Yahweh, of God. They, they don't even know prophets. They don't care what God says. And so that's where Jonah's going. Not to mention, what would the Lord have to do with such a great evil city? Why would he send a, a prophet there? Yes, there to announce judgment, but, but why would he send a prophet? Why not just let them, let them wallow in their sin and let their judgment come? These are questions we'll have to wrestle through as we work through the book. But here in the call of the Lord to Jonah, we see Jonah's called to go to that great city. And he goes there for the purpose, the Lord says, is to call out against it, to, to issue a warning. This is a declaration of warning. And Jonah is to say, God is disapproving of this great city. God's, God's verdict on you, Nineveh, is that, that you have displeased him. Right? That, that's to call out against it. But the reason, note, is because or for, that's, that's the cause for, their evil has risen before me or has come before my face. And so this is an evil city. Nineveh's wickedness had reached a critical point and divine intervention was required. The Lord was going to send his prophet. In the case of Nineveh, God's justice can no longer wait. Judgment is coming. Their evil has, has reached its point where the Lord said, that's enough. You're done. I will not let you live in your evil. So he sends a prophet. There's an urgency. Arise, Jonah, go. There's no time to waste. And so we, we know the great city, we know the great evil, and so maybe we get, a, get an idea of why Jonah would be hesitant. There's certainly multiple factors involved in the heart and mind of Jonah, but at least we can recognize this is no small task. This is not an easy commission. This is a, a difficult call for any prophet to receive. But that is what Jonah is called to do there in verses one and two, which leads to the, the second point, the final point, look at Jonah's response, verse three. We see quickly that Jonah had no intention of obeying this call that has come to him. Verse three, the word of the Lord come to Jonah. Verse three, but, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from, away from the presence of the Lord. Right, so, so here we have immediately this, this immediate juxtaposing of, of Jonah's divine commission. So here's the Lord's call, go to Nineveh, and now we have Jonah's flight to Tarshish. Right? There's this juxtaposing of these two things. And so if, you, if you're an original reader, you, you probably would have been caught off guard because in verses one and two, right, there's the clear bad guys. It's, it's those evil Ninevites. They're the antagonists. They're the ones that deserve judgment. But here, verse three, the prophet, the man of God, suddenly falls into the category of antagonists also because here's a prophet who receives a call and refuses to obey God. Right? That's not a protagonist. And so, and so the, the original readers will be like, well, what's going on here? This is no man of God. 
Jonah receives the call, and then verse three says, Jonah arose. Jonah got up, right? He did get up. That was what was required. The Lord did say arise, but his getting up had, had nothing to do with obedience, but disobedience. In fact, Jonah, the, I mean, it's, it's interesting to note that, that the relationship between Nineveh and Tarshish, so Nineveh was, what Jonah was going to go 500 miles, right? It's a long journey east up over the land through the territory, through the land to get to Nineveh. It's about a 500 mile journey. Now, Tarshish, on the other hand, was a 2,500 mile journey in the opposite direction of where he's called to go. And it's not over land, it's all over sea. And so Jonah is going as far away as possible from where God has called him to do. Right? This is an intentional rejection and rebellion against God's call. And it's not as though Jonah's like, okay, I'll just head that way and maybe he'll redirect my path as I get closer. Right? Maybe I'll go, maybe I won't. I'll at least, start, I'll at least, at least get, get ready just in case this is really what the Lord wants. No, in this case, he's adamantly opposed to obedience. He gets a call, he gets up and he goes the opposite direction. And it's followed by description of verse three, saying he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And so, so this is interesting how, how there's this call to arise, to get up and to go, and he gets up and he goes, but he goes down to Joppa and he goes down into the ship. And in verse five, he's gonna go down into the ship. So, so the, the book is recording this, this descent of Jonah, which is gonna culminate in chapter two at the depths and so his, 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 his endeavor to go away from the Lord is a, is a descent, as it's described here in the book of Jonah. It's a clear departure. There's clear conflict between what Jonah's called to do and what Jonah actually does. And, and the, the, the verse says that he does, he goes to Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. Did you notice that phrase, to flee from the presence of the Lord? Jonah's called to go to Nineveh by the Lord, and instead he arises to go to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And the question to ask is, well, what does Jonah mean to do? When it says that he fled from the presence of the Lord, what does he mean to do by that? At first sight, here's one commentator, at first sight, this phrase seems to imply that Jonah believed it was possible to escape from God's presence by fleeing to Tarshish. He would place himself beyond the Lord's jurisdiction, just to get away from where God was, right? That's what it seems like. However, this interpretation is at odds with what Jonah confesses to believe later even in this same chapter. Later in chapter one, we'll see that he confesses that the Lord is the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. So he believes God is the creator and the the God of sea and land. He believes that that God is, is sovereign over creation. So I don't think he means he wants to get away from the jurisdiction of the Lord. It's also at odds with Psalm 139. What, what, do you, you're familiar with this well-known psalm? Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? Right? And throughout the psalm, Psalm 139, there's a resounding nowhere. I can't get away from your presence. Jonah, I think, would have believed that. He would have known that. The Israelites certainly knew Psalm 139 to be true about the Lord. So Jonah, in fleeing from the presence of the Lord, I don't think he meant, it meant he was trying to move beyond the Lord's jurisdiction because that place doesn't exist. And, and, and Jonah would have known that. So what does it mean? I think the answer comes from language used to describe the ministry of the prophets. So specifically the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings and the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah. So so just listen to this language. So here's the first Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. This is is when he's at Mount Carmel and there's the the showdown with the prophets of Baal and then he's being chased um, by by that wicked woman. But listen to 1 Kings 17. Elijah the Tishabite 
in Gilead, he said to Ahab, this is the evil king, not, not the captain of, of the ship, of the Pequod. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word, right? So, so that's the description of the, the, the role of the, the Elijah the king, Elijah the prophet before the king. And then 1 Kings 18, Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, right? Same phrase there, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So I'm out to, about to Ahab. Then listen to Jeremiah 15. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not worthless, you shall be as my mouth. And so in these examples, the language that is used of faithful prophets, both Elijah and Jeremiah, they're given prophecies and they're described as standing before the Lord. Or, or you could say in the presence of the Lord. And it seems best to understand that when Jonah says, I'm trying to escape the presence of the Lord, he's refusing to stand before the Lord as a faithful prophet. In other words, instead of standing before the Lord and receiving his word, then faithfully proclaiming what the Lord has said, Jonah says, I'm not here for this. I didn't sign up for this gig. I'm out of here. I quit, right? I'm leaving this job and this profession. I think that's what it says when he's fleeing the presence. He's saying, I'm not one of the prophets anymore. I'm not gonna faithfully do what I'm called to do. In fact, the great Charles Spurgeon, here's what he says. He says, when we read that he fled from the presence of God, we do not suppose that Jonah thought he could get away from God as to his omnipresence, but he wanted to escape serving in the divine presence. He wished to avoid being employed by God in his special service as a prophet. And so this is Jonah's response. He's emphatically announcing his unwillingness to serve God. In other words, his action is nothing less than open rebellion against God's command. And so we see Jonah rise and leave for Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. That's what he does. And verse three continues, he went down to Joppa, he found a ship, so he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah goes to Joppa. He goes to the port city and he finds a ship that's going as far away as possible. In fact, we can imagine Jonah rejoicing in this ship of escape. Perhaps, perhaps he even sees this vessel of disobedience as a sign of God's approval. You can see that. If God didn't want me to get away to Tarshish, then, then why would this ship be available? Why would I have enough money to pay for this? This must be God saying, I can do this. Right? This, this is the logic of those who sinfully disobey God, isn't it? If it's possible, then God must want me to do it. But here Jonah finds a ship and he pays the fare. We don't know how much the fare is, but we don't know how long this trip would be. It'll be a long trip. At this point, we don't even know that the boat's not gonna reach its final destination, but we know that Jonah pays the price and he flees from the Lord. And that's where we have to leave him. He, he paid the fare, got on the ship. Maybe he unpacked his bags if he had any, spread out his, his mat, and he goes to the, to the bottom of the ship and, and falls asleep headed west. He, he thinks he's at peace, and right? He's done it. He's getting away from the call of the Lord. That's where we'll leave him until next week. We'll, we'll see Jonah awakened from his slumber. But as we, as we look at these three verses, I, I think the main point of application, at least from my perspective, has to be the disobedience of the prophet. Jonah's on the run, and, and Jonah is a prophet who is, who is disobeying the Lord. He's running away from the Lord's command. Thus, he's, he's running away from God's will for his life. And the question for us to ask, first is, well, how are we like Jonah? 
And how might learning from Jonah help prevent us from the same sort of disobedience? So I just, I think I have four points. I have one point and four, four subpoints about the disobedience of Jonah. So the point of application is the disobedience of Jonah. So four things to note about Jonah's disobedience from these, these verses. Jonah's disobedience was intentional, right? The decision of Jonah to run away from the Lord was not an accident. So it's intentional, it's irrational, it's expensive, and it's ultimately ineffective. These are all four characteristics of his disobedience. I'll just run through these quickly. So first, it's intentional. Jonah knew what God had said. He knew what was expected of him. He knew what obedience required, and he said, no, thank you. No way. Jonah, in his intentional disobedience, said, I'm not doing what God has told me to do. And and this example gives us a chance to evaluate our own lives. Because like Jonah, God's people often find themselves intentionally disobeying the Lord. And that's been our, our family tree. And if we're not careful, we too will find ourselves running headlong away from the Lord and away from his commands, running down the path of disobedience. And so Jonah, as, as we look at this, we ought to lose, use Jonah to ask the Lord to search our hearts. That's that same Psalm, Psalm 139. Later in that Psalm, it says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We ought to cry out to the Lord to examine us, to search us and know us. We, we're living before his face. We can't hide from him. We ought to ask him to reveal if there are error, error, erroneous ways in us or grievous ways. And it, because the, the other side of the coin, the opposite side of intentional disobedience is intentional obedience. And while no one here has been called to preach the message of judgment against Nineveh, right, the fundamental disposition of the Christian life is a disposition of obedience. Like Christians obey God. Right? That, that's the fundamental assumption of following Jesus is, we saw it in the Great Commission last night, teach them to obey. Right? Christians obey. There are personal obligations that Christians have. We are under obligations to obey. There are things to do positively. There are things to refrain from doing negatively, right? The Christian lives under moral obligations. Obedience is the lifelong response of the Christian. And the source of our marching orders, it's not a vision from the Lord, like, like what comes to Jonah, but, but it's God's word. That's where we go to find what God calls us to do. We don't pray for dreams or visions. We go to his word because he's spoken to us in his word, and so we, we seek to know what would God have us do? How would God have us live? And when it's clear, we intentionally obey. Because if we're not intentionally obeying, we will find ourselves like Jonah, intentionally disobeying. So disobedience was intentional. His disobedience was also irrational. And irrationality is the nature of sin. Right? It is, Jonah was called by God. He had known firsthand the faithfulness of God in the past. He had been a faithful prophet. And yet, he decides running away is better than obeying. And he thinks to flee from the face of the Lord is something that, that he knew, something he knew was impossible, and he thought that would be better. It's irrational. I mean, think about Adam and Eve. They believed that by eating the fruit that God had prohibited, that they could be like God. So they took and they ate. That's irrational. Right? Abraham thinks, God can't fulfill his promise through Sarah, so I'm going to fulfill the promise on my own through Hagar. And he has Ishmael. That's irrational, right? Sin is irrational. And that's what Jonah is doing here. A man thinks, God wouldn't want me to be unhappy in my marriage. So, so I'm going to pursue another relationship with a woman who's not my wife. Surely God wouldn't want me to be happy. If he didn't, why, why do I have a relationship with this new woman that's just popped up out of the blue, right? That is irrational, irrational. 
But that's the nature of sin. We believe things that are not close to true. Someone else thinks, well, it's just one small thing. This won't hurt anyone. If God made me this way, surely he'd want me to pursue these desires or these relationships. God doesn't care about this one area of my life. This is the nature of sin and disobedience is marked by irrationality. One quote, I couldn't find the source, but but listen, this is a quote that that you should write down and remember. Sin will take you farther than you wanna go, it'll keep you longer than you wanna stay, and it'll cost you more than you want to pay. Always. That's the nature of sin. Take you farther than you wanna go, keep you longer than you wanna stay, and it'll cost you more than you want to pay. This is the nature of sin. This, This is our enemy as Christians. And one of the ways... Believer, hear me, that we fight the irrationality of sin. Yes, we read God's word because that's where we're exposed to truth, but do you know where else we fight God's word? By gathering together with other Christians. Because do you know what other Christians have that we are, are, are failing to believe? The truth. We need other Christians to tell us the truth when we are not believing it. Christians, the the local church is a place for people who love us enough to tell us the truth. And when we want to evade that, that should set off alarm bells in our minds. Because the truth is what we need, because sin will deceive us and cause us to be irrational and disobey. So one of the purposes of Christian relationships is, is to guide and guard us in our lives. And so you need other Christians, brothers and sisters, to help you because you do not always believe the truth. Jonah's Jonah's disobedience was expensive. It cost him a lot financially, but as you'll see, it also cost him spiritually. His road to disobedience led him down further and further into a spiritual wasteland. It was costly, and we'll see if we're not for the Lord's compassion on Jonah, his disobedience would have cost him his very life. He He was sinking to his death, and if the Lord had not shown compassion to him, it would have cost him everything. The pursuit of sin, the road of disobedience is not worth the price. But then finally, and this is the, the last point to make, is that Jonah's disobedience was ultimately ineffective. What I mean is this, not that he eventually does go to Nineveh and obey God's call, right? He does do that in chapter three, but that's not what I mean. What I mean is that Jonah's aim to flee the presence of the Lord, to, to pursue disobedience is a fool's errand. As Jonah knew and as Jonah learns, you cannot escape the presence of the Lord forever. And and this is true of everyone here today. You may be seeking to to live totally without God. You may be running from God. You may be seeking to live apart from him, away from his presence. Or or maybe you're here and you're seeking to live for God. Regardless of what your outlook is, the reality is you are living in God's world and you are living in his presence. You can't escape him. You've been created by him and you've been created by him specifically to know him and and to enjoy him forever. And you you, you can't escape that purpose. That is why he created you, to know him, to be in a relationship with him and to enjoy life with him forever. And your life is being lived before your creator. And the question you have to address is whether or not that life is marked by peace with God or animosity with God. If you're here and you're running from God, you're trying to escape his presence, if you're here, you, you haven't been living at peace with the Lord, right? your response to these verses, your point of application is to be reconciled to God, to, to have peace with God, 
because you were made for peace with God. And we've all sinned and, and forfeited that peace, but God has made it possible through the Lord Jesus Christ because Christ has come. We, we've seen it pictured in the, the supper. We've, we've heard it sung in the songs. Christ came to reconcile sinners back to God, to, to give peace with God. And so if you're here and you don't know peace with God, if you're running from God, if you, don't, if you couldn't care less about God, you ought to know that Christ has died and has been raised and is now the mediator between you and God. And peace is offered to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the call because the day is coming when we will all stand before the Lord. And on that day, you need to know this, all disobedience will be accounted for. That day's coming. And so in that day, my hope and the hope of every believer is that Christ is enough for our disobedience, that he was punished for our sins, that we are forgiven because of his death and resurrection on our behalf. And my hope is that that, that would be the hope of every, every person in this room. But if that's not your hope, if your hope is not in Christ, on that day, you will pay eternally for your disobedience. Because God created you for him and you are not carrying out that purpose and you have rebelled against him. And so my hope for you, your only hope is Christ and he is enough for you. Let's pray as we close.